This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today we are excited to welcome back travel writer extraordinaire Rick Steves, as well as his COO at Rick Steves Europe, Craig Davidson, to talk about responsible travel and their Climate Smart program. As so many of us kick off what is shaping up to be a real blockbuster travel season. And then outside of politics, we're going to talk about limitations so many experience when it comes to travel. Small kids, no money, physical limitations, and how we've handled those at different points in our lives. Before we get started, we would love to ask you to help us grow the audience of Pantsuit Politics simply by sharing a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Even if you've done this before, it is still a nice way to sort of re-up your perspective about what makes our show valuable to you. It helps more people find Pantsuit Politics, feeds the algorithms in the way that they need to be fed, and we so appreciate your help. We also read those reviews. They're very encouraging to our team, so we'd love for you to do that today. Next up, our conversations with Rick Steves and Craig Davidson. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I don't know about you, but my news feed has been filled with headlines about this summer travel season and how many people are going to be traveling. Same here. I've seen all of the headlines about how the airports are going to be bananas. You need to mm-hmm. bring your patients You need Mm -hmm. to keep your schedule flexible. You need to build in some cushion time. Don't expect to get anywhere on time and immediately go to another reservation. I've seen a lot of information about how the airlines are planning to cope with this. And it seems like the airlines are walking this real balance right now of trying to retain their current employees and also recruit new ones and keep those current employees working through this entire season 
So it's a moment when they have a lot of leverage if they were to strike or otherwise make a stand for better working conditions. Uh, So I read all of it and think, okay, everybody, let's just keep it together this summer. We can do this. Just we can do this. Well, and as someone who travels and who loves travel, I try not to just think about this through an individual lens. I try not to just think, okay, I need to make sure and have my backup reservation, right? I really want to think about this responsibly. I absolutely do carbon offsets for all the miles I have flown. We do that here at Pantsy Politics. We keep up with our travel for work, and then we buy carbon offsets. My teenager keeps me very responsible on that. I try to think about that with rental cars and how much we're driving. If we're driving across, you know, several different points in an itinerary, We even try to think about that when we're traveling and just like how much waste we're making, not doing a lot of disposable stuff. Like I really try not to just consume, consume, consume because travel is an act of consumption in a lot of ways. And I try to be really responsible about that. But it's hard. I mean, it's hard as all these headlines make clear because these individual journeys we're going on (laughs) aren't just individual journeys. They're a part of a huge sort of mass movement of human beings around the globe during the summer months in particular. I was especially interested to read about how many of the airlines are increasing the business class section of the plane because people want to travel in greater comfort, which means that travel is going to continue to be available to even fewer people. But the people doing it are going to have a real blast on their travels. And I'm glad all this reporting is happening because I think it's clarifying about the fact that there is a toll here. Mm -hmm. We have talked extensively, and you'll hear again from Rick Steves, about the benefits of travel. But it isn't something to do lightly because it does leave such a footprint, not only in terms of carbon, but economically and socially. Yeah, and that's why we were excited when Rick and his team reached back out. We loved having him on the show last time. And we know as someone who moves thousands of people across the ocean to Europe every year, like him and his team really think deeply about this. And so we were thrilled that Rick and Craig came on to discuss with us their Climate Smart program. And you're going to hear them explain that and talk through that with us, as well as the bigger impact and benefits of travel. Rick Steves, we are so happy to have you back on Pantsuit Politics. We would love to talk about something we ventured into a little bit the last time we spoke with you, and that is the effect of travel on climate. And I know that your company has imposed really a carbon tax voluntarily on your travel. So we'd love to hear about the Climate Smart Commitment, what motivated you to do this, and how has it been working? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a big white elephant in the room. Anytime an ethical company is getting together and talking about tourism and making money by taking people abroad, it involves flying on airplanes. And that's a major contributor to climate change. There's a lot of ways. I mean, you can stay home and contribute to climate change too. But we feel we need to be honest about the carbon that we put into the climate. So um, it's kind of two-pronged. my general philosophy about traveling is travel in a way that maximizes the experience and broadens your perspective and makes you a better citizen of the world. And then you come home and you, you know, when you, when you vote, you think about what's good for the world, what's good for the future, what's good for sustainability. That should be a byproduct, I believe, of thoughtful travel. In other words, travel is really valuable. And I don't believe in being flight shamed out of my travel because flying creates carbon. 
I want to maximize the value of the environmentally expensive exercise of travel and then ethically mitigate the travel I create by getting on an airplane. And um, studies show, and I've, I'm no scientist, but I've read enough of these um, you know, valid studies, that if you smartly invest $30 in climate mitigation, you create as much good when it comes to fighting climate change as the bad you create by flying to Europe and back. $30. Now, I wish the government would just tax us for that. I wish an airline had to charge $30 more, and we had to pay $30 more. And that money would go and, and you know get rid of that much carbon in order for us to create that much carbon. But that's not the way our system works. So we have to be individually ethical. And as a company, I want to be corporately ethical. So what we've done is give ourselves a self-imposed carbon tax of $30 per person that we take to Europe on our Rick Steves tours. And we take a lot of people on our tours. In a normal year, in other words, if there's no big pandemic keeping everybody home, we take twenty-five or 30,000 people to Europe on about a 1,000 different Rick Steves bus tours. And what we've done for the last three or four years is pay $30 per person that we've taken to Europe and invested it into a portfolio of organizations that are fighting climate change. And we feel that that really pretty much mitigates. It mitigates the carbon we take by flying from the United States and Europe and back. It's nothing to brag about. It's nothing heroic. It's just baseline ethics for a tour company to pay for your carbon on the flight. And then the people who take your tour feel good about taking your company's tour because they are paying their carbon way as an ethical traveler should. So that's what we've been doing. And the conventional way to do this here in the first world is to pay for carbon offsets by, you know, invest in a company in the first world. Well, we wanted to be a little more true to our mission and a little more entrepreneurial and, and creative about this. So we decided to take our self-imposed carbon tax money, and that's 30,000 people times $30, $900,000, rounded up to a million dollars. So every year, we have a million dollars in this pot that we owe the environment. And we invest it in a portfolio of 10 organizations that are basically working in the developing world to help farmers do their work in a way that contributes less to climate change. Because half of humanity is smallholder family farmers in poor countries, really working very, very hard just to feed their kids. And they make $5 a day on average, and they contribute a lot to climate change. And poor people contributing to climate change, rich people contributing to climate change, it's all contributions to climate change. We thought we could invest smartly in farming practices in the global south to help these farmers not only produce more, but produce more while contributing less to climate change, thus mitigating the carbon that we create. And it's amazing how well that works. So we've got 10 organizations. We give an average of $100,000 a year to each of these corporations. And they're in the third world, in the developing world, in the poor world, in the global south, whatever you want to call it. And they are able to do their work in a way that is more productive, is, is more environmental friendly, and contributes less to climate change. I want to distinguish that from just helping people who are suffering because of climate change. There's a lot of suffering in the poor world because of climate change. I mean, you can imagine. And that's fine to help that, but that's not what we're trying to do. That's a different kind of aid. We are investing in farmers so they can do their work in a way that is climate smart.
So, Craig, I would love for you to tell me about the design of the Climate Smart Commitment. When you were thinking about this self-imposed carbon tax, what kinds of conversations did you have? What sort of alternatives did you consider? Well, I think when we talk about the origin of the Climate Smart Commitment, it really all goes back to our values. Um, as an organization, we are teachers first. We're role models personally and professionally, and we advocate for humanness in a world that's increasingly isolated or materialistic. So if you take those values aside, you then go back to say, what does our company want to stand for and how do we want to run it? And Rick is very committed to social programs and social justice issues. And I come from a world where I don't believe that maximizing shareholder value can exist without some sort of social element connected to that. Back in university, it was about, you know, maximize shareholder value. I think the 80s and 90s changed it to short-term income, maximize your dividend. And I used to think, well, if I make you a millionaire, but you can't breathe the air or drink the water, I don't know how I've maximized your value. So right. regulations aside, isn't there a, a, there has to be an ethical component to my decision-making. And so I, I would say it's like, if everything you did ends up on the New York Times and your mother reads it, is she going to be ashamed of you or not from the decisions that you're making? So I've always kind of operated that way. I've tried to be the make the right ethical decisions based on how I believe people should act. And when I met Rick, it's really those two ideas came together to create the our entire philosophy. Really, we we commit the community and the earth as shareholders. We donate money locally to help our community get stronger, and then we consider the climate smart commitment our dividend to the earth. So when we started that, it really was this idea of how do I put our values at the center of a program that helps pay back or offsets, if you like that word, we would say creatively mitigates the carbon created by traveling in a way that puts humans at the center of the program, because that's what we're trying to do. Travel allows you to learn new things and break down barriers. So how can we include that element, put humans at the center of it? but then really adapt all of our values and allow our travelers to understand what we're doing, be very transparent and really take accountability for what we're doing as an organization. So then as we were thinking about what to do, we were reaching out through our networks to find out what organizations existed, what we could do. We did research carbon offsets. A book called Drawdown was really helpful for us. When you read all the different programs that can happen, and reading Drawdown and meeting different organizations, this idea of really understanding the power of education, especially for women and children in the developing world and how that can have huge impacts going forward, that ties into our teaching philosophy as an organization. And then these ideas of the global capital market system or global capitalism is not the most humane development system that exists. It's the worst development system, but it's the only one we have. The capital market system or capitalism does not care about the quality of the inputs. It cares about the value of the output and whether the organization can make money on it. And so looking at that and systemic injustice around the world, we, we really wanted to recognize that climate change or the system itself really is impacting the poorest people in the poorest countries the hardest. It's smallholder farmers who are in the middle of it. Climate change is really impacting their ability 
to make a living. It's keeping them in extreme poverty. Commodity prices are driving down their, their standard of living. And so how could we help farmers farm in a way that helps them adapt to and mitigate their impact on climate change, stop deforestation and use of chemicals and all of that aspect of it, while helping them increase their incomes, get out of extreme poverty, educating women and girls and strengthening their communities and really owning the project. This wasn't about people coming in and telling people what to do. It was partnering with communities to take action, own the project and move forward. And that's where we come into from our value set. So you focused in on this population of farmers in the developing world. How much of that feels like sort of traditional philanthropy and what's different given what you're trying to accomplish in terms of the climate dividend here? I mean, that's a good question. It all merges in my mind, to be honest with you. I don't separate mm-hmm. what would be traditional philanthropy and what we're trying to do. I think there is an argument to be made. We're doing something that's on a humanitarian level. But from a climate change perspective, if you go through the economic model, farmers make less and less money every year because commodity prices keep dropping because we don't want to pay more for food. They make less and less money. So it forces them to do farming in a way that hurts the environment. It's either more chemicals, they will deforest to expand their, their crops. They're stuck with droughts and you know extreme weather that really makes it hard for them to farm. And so they do climate harming activities moving forward just to try to make enough money in order to live. And so when we look at this, it is really using organizations that partner with local counterparts to help farmers learn how to create organic fertilizer, for example, how to start intercrop and grow more than one crop at a time, hydroponics so they save water and get through the dry spells. So now they can use their existing land, be more productive, make more income. It stops the need to go spend more on chemicals or deforest or continue to expand. So if we can keep what's there, that's step number one. And then the next step is bringing in reforesting, reforesting the depleted areas that have already been affected. A lot of people, because they can't make money and are in extreme poverty, you know, it's a constant search for firewood or open source fires and and fire pits are burning all the time. That's deforestation. So if you can bring in climate smart cook stoves or chemical water filters, now you've got the ability You stop the ongoing deforestation. You can bring back biodiversity that stabilizes the environment and really has a huge impact on, on climate change. That's how we look at that. So we are helping bringing farmers out of extreme poverty, but we're doing it in a way that's allowing them to keep their own carbon footprint small or even decreasing and really allowing them to thrive inside of the system that otherwise is treating them as an input and not necessarily worrying about their quality of life in that process. I know there's an advocacy piece of your investment as well. You want to talk about that? Yes, I believe in advocacy a lot because advocacy basically means go into the halls of government and make legislators more aware of the issue so they can vote smartly. And if you just sit at home and complain, uh, there are people who are going to advocate against the issue that you care about. You know, there's, there's going to be all sorts of giant corporate interests that don't really want to worry about climate change because it's not good in the short term for their profit statement. And they feel legally obligated to profit maximize for their shareholders in the short term. And climate change doesn't even register if you're thinking about short-term returns for, you know, stockholders. 
long-term sustainability, that would register, but that's not what, you know, what motors a lot of corporate thinking. So we want to go and empower organizations whose mission is to advocate for the climate in Congress by helping fund them so they can do their work more effectively. For me, as a philanthropist, I feel I get more bang for my buck, not by helping feed hungry people in a poor country, but by encouraging our lawmakers to have policies that are more friendly to fighting hunger or more friendly to fighting climate change. So that's something I'm really excited about. And um, about I think about a quarter of the money that we dedicate to this program of ours does go to advocacy companies, organizations in the United States, again, whose mission is to go to Congress, go to Washington, D.C., and um, advocate for climate smart policies in the United States government. And that, that alone could move mountains if we could just get our government to, to vote for the environment and for long-term sustainability and profitability and affluence. But our system really is rigged so that policies help short-term profits because everybody wants the money now. Well, that's because lobbying is expensive and it's most likely people like paying for advocacy really is important because otherwise it's just rich people who are lobbying. Yeah. And I, that's why the main organization I support outside of this climate work is Bread for the World. You know, we're, we're affluent, we're privileged people, we get to travel. And um, most of the world would never see their name on a plane ticket. And 10% of humanity is um, struggling in what's called extreme poverty. Half of humanity is trying to live on $5 a day. That's tough, but that's, that's okay. I mean, there, you know, there's hope there. But if you're trying to live on $2 a day, there's really no hope. And that just makes our world a more dangerous place and a more desperate place. And there's plenty of money. If we could just reprioritize a few things to smartly fight desperate, extreme poverty, the 10% of humanity that is hungry and is kind of in a situation that is hopeless. Tell me a little bit about that advocacy piece that you alluded to. I know that that, that it's two prongs here that we're helping people on the go forward in these developing nations, but we're also looking at the big polluters, right? Where a lot of climate change impact is happening. So how did you settle on funding advocacy in the United States? And, and what are you thinking about when you're looking for partners in that effort? Well, funding in the United States, Rick, I mean, some of it comes from Rick. Um, he, he's always been involved with Bread for the World for years. They're a big advocacy group in Washington about hunger. They're now very involved in climate change and trying to get climate laws passed and using some of the farming techniques that we're now showing success with around the world, getting the U.S. government to recognize that as part of foreign aid. So some of it is with Bread for the World. The other big lobbying group we have or education group is Citizens Climate Education or Citizens Climate Lobby, depending which side of the, the fence they're on. They're very grassroots oriented. They started out as a group that just wanted to force recognition of a carbon tax, basically you get a nationwide carbon tax, but they're involved in all the states too, to, to get government to pass a law like that. But since then they've expanded. So I really like citizens climate education. I like all of them, but I like citizens climate education because it's so grassroots. They spend time to teach everybody from all walks of life. They concentrate on university students who are clearly the most interested and active, but all age ranges of how to write letters to their, like op-eds to the newspapers, letters to the editor, how to write letters to their congressman, how to hold a meeting 
to really get the grassroots oriented so that on all levels of politics, politicians understand that there's an urgency. They also have worked in Washington and some of their work has been passed in the bills that Biden has signed since he's become president and the big massive bills that have gone through and the environmental investments that have been made. So that's really where that comes from. I like advocacy work in general, but I like to see the side of grassroots involvement and teaching ordinary people, basically, how to get involved. Because so many of us, things aren't going to change if we don't get involved. If we don't hold companies or politicians accountable to what we believe is right, it's not going to change. And I think that's at the core of everything we're saying. I mean, accountability. How do you take accountability for your actions? And we want to hold people accountable. We're trying to be accountable with this program. There's not a lot of accountability being taken anywhere else. So I like the idea of educating grassroots people who also care so that they can continue to hold politicians accountable. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Imagine that some of your commitment to this issue comes from your travel experiences. We were talking about our conversation with you today, and we know that you have such affection for Turkey. And I can imagine that you have felt some grief following the earthquakes in Turkey. So I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about those personal experiences you have with places and then watching them be devastated by yep. extreme weather or natural disasters that are that are seemingly all dialed up right now from what we experienced in the past. Well, I'm a traveler and I'm a historian. And so when you travel, you have a kind of a, I don't know, horizontal appreciation of how beautiful this world is. You know, I'm a Christian. I believe there's a God and God created all of us. And that makes all of us God's children. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters. It's kind of a fundamental approach to my faith. And if you believe in a God in whatever sort of organized religion or unorganized religion, if there's a God or some kind of a creator, that means we're all his or her or its children. And that makes us all brothers and sisters equally precious. I love that. And it's very, um, you know, it's understandable that somebody would care about somebody who's suffering across the street. That's just a decent person. But if there's somebody suffering across the sea, for me, that's just as real. That's just as real. And I don't think it's a decent person that can care about somebody across the street and ignore somebody in the same situation across the sea. I think that's the person who needs to travel a little bit or who needs to think about what really matters. So without neglecting the person across the street, I take into my you know, realm of concern a global approach to fighting these problems. Um, so we have this opportunity as travelers to get out there and get to know the world. And that's what I love. When you travel you not only realize there are serious problems, but just as importantly, you realize the world is home to billions of beautiful, wonderful people. So much joy, so much love, so many great families, so, so much happiness. And, and you, that doesn't make the news, of course, but the vast majority of, of us on this planet are, are doing great. We're not all rich. Nobody can, I mean, it's, we're not, the United States has a problem of too much affluence, but you don't want to talk about that. Uh, a lot of countries are much happier than us and much more fulfilled and have much more, quote, family values or whatever. And they're nowhere near as frantically materialistic and, and capitalistic as we are. Uh, but that's, that's another discussion. But the point is, the world's a beautiful place. And when you travel, you get to know it. My mission with my 100 workmates here at Rick Steves Europe is to equip and inspire Americans to venture beyond Orlando. You know, I mean, I, Disneyland's fine. No judgment. We're going to Orlando next week now, Rick. I know. <laughs> I know. A lot of people are. And the one guidebook that outsells, there's one guidebook in the United States of America that outsells the Rick Steves Italy guidebook. And it's the guidebook to Disney Stop. World. So that's a big market. And uh, But after three or four, maybe five trips to Disney World, you could, you know, get a passport and fly across the sea. You've got enough money. It's no more expensive to go to Portugal than to go to Disney World. And maybe you just, you'll try it and you think, oh no, this stinks. They have different food and they don't speak my language. I'm going back. 
back home. That's fine, but give it a whirl. I wouldn't have traveled had not I had the accident in my personal history that my dad, who was a band director and a piano tuner, decided to import pianos from Germany. So when I was 14 years old, he took me to Germany, saw the piano factories, and I saw more than the piano factories. I saw this world as my playground. That was really pretty cool. I'm lucky. And ever since then, I've prioritized my life to travel. And it turns out I made make my living not teaching piano, but teaching travel. And uh, But when we when we travel... We gain that, for me, that's the most beautiful souvenir. My mission these days is not just to help people pack light and have a smart itinerary and get a good hotel. That's part of it. But my mission is to inspire and equip Americans to travel in a way where they get out of their comfort zone, where they see culture shock as not something to avoid, but as something that is a constructive thing. Culture shock is the growing pains of a broadening perspective. And Americans need that as much as anybody. And if I can curate that culture shock by being a good tour guide, of being a good travel writer. That's what I do. And my hope is people bring home the most beautiful souvenir. And that's not, you know, some little thing they hang on the wall. That is a broader perspective. I'll tell you what, though, with, with Turkey, that's the risk, right, though? It's a risk to do that. You know, like you you open your heart and you allow in a little more yep. heartbreak when something like this happens oh, in yeah. a country you've been to. You know, like I sure. I traveled to Tunisia mm-hmm. in my 20s with my husband. And when they experienced their spring and they had terrorist attacks in the Bardo Museum where I'd been, like, it just felt different. You can't, you can't wall it off when you've walked streets and then you're watching them crumble after an earthquake. Like, it's just heartbreaking. You're forever changed. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson said, travel makes a person wiser, if less happy. Yeah. It complicates our lives. Muhammad said, don't tell me how educated you are. Tell me how much you've traveled. For Muslims, a billion Muslims on this planet, they are supposed to go to Mecca once in their life. Well, the idea is not to go to Mecca Uh, that's not the fundamental thing. The fundamental thing that Muhammad was after, I believe, was getting out of their norm Mm. and finding themselves in a place where they're not the norm and then having a broader perspective on things and a greater appreciation of this planet. You know, you could decide, Sarah, like you just mentioned, I don't want to do that, it's going to break my heart. Yeah, you could surround yourself with people just like you, doing just fine, have your barbecue apron on and and, um, go, go to your grave holding a nice can of beer, you know, <laughs> uh, with a big smile on your face. Uh, that's, that's a choice you have. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to condemn that. It's just my life is richer and I feel so much more part of the world. And it just carbonates my whole outlook and existence because I know the heartache and I know the joy that people in every corner of this planet feel when things go wrong and when things go right. And then when we have something, let's say we have a 9-11, sort of that kind of a disaster, I realize, well, that was horrible, but we're not the only country that's had a 9-11. Most countries have had tragedies that make our 9-11 seem small. We're 300 million people. We lost 3,000. There are countries of 2 million people that lost 30,000. I mean, that's, I don't know, a thousandfold the grief per capita. And it doesn't even register on ours. But we had 9-11. We've been hit and we've got to get this rectified or whatever. Yes, that's our hurt. But there's other hurt. And we contribute to other hurt. And we could help. We're so powerful. We could help alleviate other hurt. Uh, I really believe our, you know, our, our defense budget is designed to make us safer. And we spend about a trillion dollars a year on military hardware. 
$800 billion, run that in a neighborhood. And okay, we need a military. I, I certainly agree with that. But the litmus test would, how much should each of those billion dollars be spent to make us safer? And hard power is the default. But investing in soft power, making America more beloved, making the world a more stable and just place with our leadership and with our investment. I'm not talking about doing that because you're a person of faith and you believe in loving your neighbor. Because in the privacy of the voting booth, that does not work with Americans, sadly. You could be the nicest Christian on the block, and you are wired to go into the voting booth, or however you vote these days, and vote not for how does this election impact people south of the border, but how does it impact my family and our wealth and our security, you know? And I just want to help teach people that if this is a pragmatic investment when you talk about soft power, how do we make our world a more stable and just place? And again, you can do it because you're a compassionate person, or you can do it because you just care about stability. Well, and you're seeing that right now with Ukraine. You're seeing that with our support for Ukraine, I think, this, this kind of yeah. Venn diagram of hard power and soft power. You're seeing it with a, a very good and compassionate and smart investment of hard power. I think there's the soft power also, which would be recognizing that for the average lot in life for women, I don't know, half the women on this planet, they spend hours every day walking water, for water. Right. Yeah. You know, a little bit it takes for the cost of one extra soldier overseas, and we need soldiers overseas, but for the cost of one extra soldier, we could build a hundred wells, dig a hundred wells in a hundred thirsty communities where every mom in every one of those thirsty villages abandons their kids for three or four hours every morning to walk for water and then walks that water home. Drill the well in that community. And then every morning, instead of walking across the county for water, those moms walk across the square. And when they pump that water, what are they thinking? God bless America. God bless America. I've got water for my children. That's a $5,000 investment that brings water to an entire village. What a turn on. If people could learn that, they'd think more carefully about blowing well, other billions countries of dollars. Do it too. Yeah. I mean, you see Russia and China investing in that way. That's why Kamala Harris is in Africa right now. Because yep. we're like, we can't be absent of influence. Yeah. And that type of influence, investment influence in other parts of the world, for sure. And fighting for the hearts and souls of those people mm -hmm. that could be our enemies or could be our friends. But that's, yeah. that's what's fun about travel, is you talk to other people. It's so important to get other perspectives. You know, when I come upon a wall in my travels, whether it's a physical wall or a metaphorical wall, I know there's two stories to that wall. There's two narratives. And it's very easy to take the narrative that our society and our values would be likely to support. Think of the wall in Israel between Israelis and Palestinians. But you owe it to yourself to understand the narrative on the other side of that wall. Yeah. Well, and you're right. It's pragmatically important. It's not just yeah. strategically important. I thought another interesting, back to the topic of travel and climate change, there's been a couple articles around talking about the no-visit locations or the places that need rest. Uh, lots of national parks on that list that are suffering from water shortages. I read one that had Amsterdam on the list because the people, I think the people who live in Amsterdam really enjoyed the COVID break and were like, you know what, this is not so bad. Um, and I wonder how you think about that, how if, if you see a future in travel where we're sort of rotating or alternating or giving places rest. Even when you were talking right. about <laughs> uh, air travel, I thought I wouldn't even be mad to go back to ships where it just took us longer to get over there. 
um, and longer mm-hmm. to get back. Like, I wonder how you see the future of the the intensive because it feels like I don't know if the numbers are actually shifting or if this is just a post COVID surge, but it does feel like people. You know, I was even looking back at a trip I took to Europe when I graduated from high school um, and just thinking about the like the crowd situation where where mm-hmm. where we were and how much more intense the crowds are now and, ha- and how you think mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's the emerging economies, India, Russia until the right, war, right, right. Uh, China, Chinese people and Indian people. They've got all these dreams to see these famous iconic things in Europe. And now there's a you know, there's a hundred million people in India and a hundred million people in China that have that have enough money and freedom to hop on a plane anytime they right. want. This is a huge upper middle class or upper class. And um, they want to go to Eiffel Tower. You know, they want to go and Indian people want to go to Switzerland and see where their movies are made. Um, you know, everybody wants to see Romeo and Juliet's courtyard in Verona. I've never seen such a crush. And it was nothing but big bus loads of people from countries in the Pacific Rim and, and South Asia. And they wanted to see these places just like we have in the past. And now they've got suddenly the money mm-hmm. and the freedom to do that. It's a great thing that there's that much affluence and stability and freedom where people can do that. But the reality is, like us, they want to go to the same places. Uh, you know, it is, I kind of built my whole Rick Steves travel business out of helping people get off the beaten path. My first book was called Europe Through the Back Door instead of Through the Front Door. And um, these days, the problem has got so much worse because so many more people are traveling and we have this crowdsource mentality. Everybody's eating Tex-Mex in Paris. Why? (laughs) Well, because the Tex-Mex restaurant is number one on TripAdvisor. Didn't you read? We're all going to Tex-Mex. You're going to Tex-Mex because a bunch of people who've never been to Paris said this is to die for. You know, there's no curation of this information. When I started writing there, and this was uh, 1980 was my first guidebook. And I've got, I don't know, 60 or 80 guidebooks now. Uh, But when I wrote my first guidebook, there was not enough information. There was desperate need for more information for independent travelers. Now, with the internet and with all these apps and crowdsourcing and all these uh, bloggers and all this kind of stuff, we got so much information. And there's a lot of good information in that, but somebody's got to curate it. So the, the weird thing now is, for me, Americans still have the shortest vacations in the rich world. We still want to do too much. Back when I was a kid, there was a movie, If It's Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium, about the Blitz tour around Europe. You know, it's just insanity. We still have that problem. So, but what we have exacerbating it now is everybody wants to go to the same places. You know, there's a handful of cities in Europe, like you were alluding to, Amsterdam, Barcelona, Venice, uh, Bruges, uh, Salzburg, um, Rome, that, you know, in season, local people run for cover. And it's just taken over by noisy tour groups. And uh, I can see there being a backlash. In fact, in 2019, the big issue before COVID hit was, are people going to start getting angry at tourists, mm. you know, as we invade their beautiful spaces? And my friends, when, when there was no more tourism, my friends in Rome said, it was astounding. Local people came out and they retook their beloved piazzas that they had abandoned because of tourism. And now families were playing at the fountain that Bernini sculpted right there on Piazza Navona. Local families, because there wasn't all, all the tourism there. But there's, there's this crowdsourcing stuff, and we all know what that's like. There's the Instagram thing. And I just, you know, my whole job is to find places that are undiscovered and help people go there to spread it out. 
But there's this other feeling that everybody's got to go literally to the same spot for the same selfie. Mm-hmm. I, and I've seen it in a bunch of places around Europe where I was in Zermatt, you know, in the shadow of the Matterhorn. And there's a construction project going on in the only bridge over the little river in their ravine in that town, Zermatt, and in Switzerland. I said, well, what, what are you building here? We're building a platform for the Instagram people so they don't obstruct traffic every morning by standing on the bridge. This is a theater being built for Instagram people right at the base of the Matterhorn because for some reason, somebody declared, if you're going to take a picture of the Matterhorn, you got to stand right, right here. Oh, my gosh. I wish y'all could see Beth's and, face right now. She's in deep contemplation. Her uh, eyes are closed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about mm-hmm. one of the the most formative Instagram experiences that I've had in my life was at Stonehenge. And I felt such a sense of the sacredness of that spot. And I was really frustrated with the selfies. It felt like a selfie line instead of people being there to experience something truly unusual in the world. So I'm with you. I'm just, I'm suffering about the (laughs) Uh, theater built on the bridge. Well, Beth, one of my guides sent me a photograph from the Louvre in the big room where the Mona Lisa is. And it's right back to the point where you got to have shoulder pads and you've got to have sharp elbows to even get close to Mona Lisa. And everybody's hand is up in the air. Yeah. it's. I just had this scary thing. It's almost like a Hitler salute with their camera there, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? And they're all taking pictures of what they're all supposed to take pictures of and usually with their face in it. That's the Louvre in Paris. I was in the Prado filming just a couple months ago for our art series. We just made a six-hour series called The Story of European Art for Public Television. And in the Prado, they're so strict about no photographs, you can't even get bring the phone out of your pocket. And nobody has any photographs uh, in the Prado. And at first, I was frustrated by that because people want to get a photograph. But it occurred to me the experience was different. Everybody was in the moment. Everybody was whispering about the impact the art is having on them rather than jostling for a photograph. And I just think that is so beautiful. As a tour guide, many times I've had a, you know, a local arranged for a group of fado singers or flamenco dancers or a folk troupe or a pub music in Scotland or Ireland. And the group is just jockeying for photographs. And I just say, hey, you guys, these musicians have something to offer. This is a beautiful opportunity to enjoy their music. We're going to take this one piece now and get all the photos you want, and then let's put our cameras away and be in the music, out of respect for the musicians, if nothing else. So we all got our pictures done, and then everybody put their cameras away, and then they really enjoyed the concert. But as individuals and people who are taking their families around Europe and investing a lot of money in, in exposing our children to this kind of great art and culture, let's learn to do the stuff we need to do with our screens, but then put the screens down and be in the moment. Hike to that little place, be behind the waterfall, and feel the the spray of the waterfall on your face. And look at how the sun makes rainbows through that bridal veil of water. And stand there and imagine the first Vikings that, that came there on Iceland and how they were overwhelmed by the wonder of the power of nature on their little chunk of the world. There's so much we can do to be there. And that's the mark of a good traveler these days. And that is our challenge. And if all you do is go to the famous places, you're going to come home with stories about how long the lines were. But remember, you could take away all those famous places. Let's say 10% of Europe has crowd problems. You know, all the most, the Anne Frank's house. You could take away Anne Frank's house and you could go to the Dutch History Museum, which is actually better than Anne Frank's house for that whole experience and learn how the Dutch survived 
the Holocaust or didn't survive it. You could go to the Colosseum in Rome and you could scramble and struggle and wait and pay and be frustrated and, and finally get inside the Colosseum and, okay, that was great. But you could walk 10 minutes away to the Baths of Caracalla and see Roman engineering just as impressive as the Colosseum with a handful of tourists. You could enjoy the Colosseum for free and easy from the outside and then go inside the Baths of Caracalla and have no crowds at all. So one thing we're working on at, at Rick Steves Europe is um, a whole catalog of alternatives to crowds for people who really don't want to suffer through the crowds. The Uffizi Gallery, the Uffizi Gallery is really great, but I'd have a tough time saying it's it's greater than the museum of the cathedral, the Museo del Duomo, just behind. It's just a five-minute walk away from the Uffizi Gallery. And uh, it's got no crowds just because it's not sexy for some reason. But I love that museum equally. Well, it's because you're looking for the, what you said, though, if you want to learn. Like, are you there to learn and understand? Are you there to check it off uh, the list, right? Are you there to just go choo-choo? And look, I'm a list checker. I'm trying to see all the national parks. I'm not even trying to lie. Yep. But, like, I, I yep. was struck by what you said about Americans are famous for, for wanting to crowd in as much as possible because we don't we just talked about this on our show we have shrinking vacation days that yeah. issue yep. is getting worse because people get the same amount of time yep. for sickness or whatever and so they save it for disasters and think well i can't use it for vacation because i only have this finite amount of time right yeah and so we're, our vacation yeah. days are shrinking so if they're shrinking and you want to get the most out yeah. of it and that's what we tell ourselves you know it's it's yep. funny because that book the book you're talking about the orlando book Oh, yeah. Hilariously, it has this little section in it that's like 30 pages. And you think you're getting a book about Orlando and Disney, and then it just kind of veers off course. And it does like a 30-page lesson on parenting. And it's basically like, now listen up. Don't go to Disney if you've never told your child no and write us yeah. a letter about how you had a bad experience. Like, legitimately, it's hilarious. And it's like, you know... You got to tell no. You got to have boundaries. They got to have a nap, or you're not going to have a good time. It doesn't matter if you do everything else in the rest of this book. So I think all your books should have like a 30 page section on like Buddhist contemplation. Like, listen. Yeah. <laughs> you, that's a good idea. You need a little section that's, that's like, this is what we're here. We're not here to check off a list. We're not here to run through and get all the selfies. Yeah. We want to be present and put our phones down. So you need like a little 30 page section that's like a Buddhist. Yeah. This is how we're going to do this. Cause I'm telling you that section on that, but I will never forget it. I'm like flipping through this book and I'm like, Oh, we've taken a turn here, but I kind of dig it. Ah, I like that. Or even a sidebar at the, on the front page of every chapter, yeah. reminding people it's going to be a lot of tourism here, a lot of chaos. You don't have a bucket list. Forget yeah. that bucket list. Yeah. You're here. In fact, a lot of times when I'm having a really good experience in Europe, the thought occurs to me is this is not bucket list travel. Mm. This is real travel. I'm not here just to check something off. I'm making friends right now. I'm getting out of my comfort zone. I'm a cultural chameleon. I'm getting to know something I would have never gotten to know. And for the rest of my life, I'm going to have a better understanding of anchovies or whiskey or, you know, or patank or a Turkish bath or whatever is this new experience. Uh, so many people, they have a list of how many countries they've visited that means nothing. You could be in 100 airports and you can brag you've been in 100 countries and never talk to another person. You could, you could never get out of your comfort zone. For me, I just love this thought that, uh, you know, culture shock is a good thing. I think, as I mentioned, it's the growing pains of a broadening perspective. And for me, that's the souvenir. That's the joy of travel. And uh, it's easy for a lot of people to throw around the, the term transformational travel. But that's really a beautiful thing. If you can think about how travel can change us, 
you know, the, the most frightened people in our society, I believe, and, and fear in our society is quite a problem. And politicians and other people take advantage of our fear against us. I mean, uh, you know, somebody, some great president said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. It's so true. And we've forgotten that now completely. We are embracing fear. And the most frightened people in our society, I think, are the people with no passports. The people buried deep in the middle of this great nation that have never reached out. And it's basically, you know, fear is for people who don't get out very much. The flip side of fear is understanding, and we gain understanding when we travel. And I would love it if people would stop saying, have a safe trip, because it's safer now than it was back when people said, bon voyage. I love bon voyage. Bon voyage. Have a good trip. Have fun. Not, ah, have a safe trip. We'll pray for you. Are you really sure you should be taking your kids over there considering all that's going on? You know, statistically, and I know statistics are optional in much of our society today, but statistically, it is safer to go to Europe or go over wherever you want to go now than it was 30 years ago. And uh, yeah, there are certain risks, but there are certain risks by staying at home. But if you want our world to be a safer place, the best thing to do is travel. Then if you travel thoughtfully, you come home with a mindset where you're more likely to want to build bridges and less likely to want to build walls. Because walls are built by people who are afraid and who want to be safe. And the irony is, if we just rely on walls rather than bridges, we're going to find ourselves in a position where we become more endangered. The best way to make us safe is to build bridges and get to know our neighbors. And that's what we do when we travel. I want to go back really quickly as we wrap up to what you said about curation, because there's so much from where you started, where you were giving so much information because so much information was lacking. I look back on that trip in 1999. I know I did it with your books, but still I'm like, you know, now that you can Google and get mass transit directions like that, you know, like, I'm like, how did I do this? I don't remember. I guess I had a a transit map, but that is confusing, but I've lost that part of my brain. So I hope I don't need it anytime soon. Um, but I think now, exactly, and you and you pivoted, right? You you went beautifully from giving the information to an environment where we had so much information, you became the trusted curator. And I want to, I have to ask what you think about all these new artificial intelligence sites that are curating, that are taking all the data out there on travel, probably the text, absolutely the text of many of your books for yeah, 100% right. for sure, and creating these itineraries as the new type of, curation. Now, I think you're right. I think they're going to, uh, about one thing, they're going to sweep up those trippet. They're going to pick up some of that crowdsourcing. They could perhaps send you to the Tex-Mex restaurant in Paris, but I wonder mm-hmm. how you feel about those sites and that that new frontier as far as travel itineraries. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's part of that whole idea that there's a lot of information out there and it's just, you could very cleverly design this information. So it has artificial intelligence and it takes your needs and it put us all together. But if the information that it's drawing from is not your style, it could even be accurate. But what's your style? Do you really want that? What's your definition of funky? And what's your definition of elegant? And what's your definition of interesting? And that's very personal. So I think as a consumer of information, when we travel, you got to know what is the source? Who's this coming from? And, you know, my guidebooks are the best-selling guidebooks for every country in Europe by a long shot. And generally, we outsell our competition combined. Uh, And I think it's because we update our information in person every edition. And we have a consistent personality in the guidebooks where, yes, I know what Rick thinks about hotels, and I want nicer hotels. 
or I know what th- Rick thinks about uh, eating in a in a commotion kind of place, uh, you know, in a, in a dive, in a greasy spoon, and I love it. You know, every every guidebook has their own personality about about all these things. Um, but it needs to be consistent. If you're going to use this book in Portugal and you had a great time, well, use it in Sicily. You'll also have a great time. I think with our guidebooks, we just, it's funny you asked this because we just had a meeting because right now we're all heading off to Europe to update our guidebooks. I've got an amazing two months coming up where I'll have two guides every day for 60 days as I update my guidebooks all over. This year I'm going to Spain, France, and Scandinavia. And uh, we've decided, yes, we have to embrace the obvious tools that people can have online that are not subject to that crowdsourcing problem where everybody's going to Tex-Mex. And what we're doing, for example, on Google Maps, now I don't need to describe how to get by bus or subway from your hotel in London to the British Museum. Uh, You can just type in British Museum from your hotel and and click on the, the trolley or the bus, and it'll tell you how to do it right now and tell you how the traffic is. So we need to teach our travelers, especially those disinclined to embrace the, the modern um, tech, to be able to do that. And that's exciting. So just last month, we made a global decision for all 80 of our guidebooks to gut the information that's too much detail and give people the encouragement and the basic skills to take that online. And I'm thankful for that kind of information because that's the tedium of a guidebook. Yeah. I don't want to spend my time figuring out how to get from Heathrow Airport to Gatwick Airport. You know, you can just dial that in and it'll tell you how to get there and when what's the traffic right now. And no guidebook can compete with that. But what our guidebook does, it 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 has a personality. It cuts through all the superlatives. It knows that your time is just as valuable as your money. Mm. And it knows how to give you the context so that when you see that windmill, you know what an Archimedes screw is and you know what a exciting thing that was centuries ago when the Dutch harnessed the wind this way and they developed a fancy windmill where you could spin the cap so it faces into the wind and you could let the sails go big or little depending on how the wind power was and then you could capitalize on the energy you know earned by turning that big wind meal and it would then spin an Archimedes screw which would bring water from the low country up over the dike and pour it into the sea and you drain that land and you could turn it into beautiful farmland and you could become a rich and powerful nation. They say, God made the world, but the Dutch, we made Holland, you know, (laughs) to be able to see a windmill and get excited about that is pretty cool. But how many travelers know what an Archimedes screw is when they see a windmill? Not very many. You go to the famous aqueduct in Southern France that you've probably got an image of it, the the Pont du Gard. Yeah. This great Roman aqueduct. That's not the aqueduct. That's the most scenic bridge in a 30-mile-long stone construction with a little square man-made river on top that is engineered to drop one inch every 100 yards for 30 miles. So 2,000 years ago, people didn't need to carry water into the great city of Nîmes, but that it would, it would flow in a gentle little river built by the Romans into the city. What a beautiful thing. And then after seeing that biggest bridge to go to Nîmes, look at the end of that 30-mile-long structure and imagine the jubilation on that day when water just gushes into the city. Wow, Rome beat us, but now we're on the winning team. We've got stability and we've got running water. Hail Caesar. I mean, that's what we want to do. And no, you know, no, uh, no automated source of information is going to give you goosebumps, I don't no. think. But that's what I well, like Well, and do. I just think paradoxically, even though it can take in all this data, 
it's not up to date, weirdly enough, right? Because it's using a dated mm-hmm. data source. So in this world where there are so many crowds and the the locations themselves are adapting quickly, where you'll get all of a sudden we have a timed entry at a national. Like we on a, one of our recent trips, we were on the very first day they used a timed entry for a national park at Arches yeah. National Park. And like that stuff, it's it's weird. It feels like a technology like that would be the best place for for information that's updating. But really, you need humans that are talking to the person the first day and going, "Okay, this is how it's going to work, and this is how it's changing." And, and it's kind of like yeah. weirdly out of date. That that regular updating, I think, is going to get increasingly. It's already very valuable, but even more valuable. Well, that's just the hard work of travel information, and there's no way around it. You can't you can't email somebody. You can't crowdsource this information. You can try, and most people that own guidebook lines now series, they are web web companies that are just trying to um, monetize the data, and uh, you know they update it uh, with without people going there. We spend three or four hundred days of researcher time to update our books wow. every year. Three or four hundred days of people—that's expensive, and it's you know, hard work. work. I mean, I love to travel, yeah. but my husband was like, "We travel because you do all the hard work. It's it's a lot yeah. of work. Uh, it's a lot of work." Well, that's nice. I'm glad your husband <laughs> uh, appreciates that because what I do—I'm a strange guy that likes to do that. It's my favorite thing to do. I mean, but I, do I go over there and I miss and I hit and I miss and I miss and I hit and I miss and hit and then I bring home the hits and I write them up in hopes that other people can have a better batting average. Yeah. And uh, if you like my style, uh, apparently you've enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. You're just going to, it's going to cut through the superlatives and you'll know how to get the most out of the Cinque Terre or the Algarve or the Isle of Skye or the, you know, the best Greek Isle from Athens. Oh, the Isle of Skye I'm so excited. Oh, my, see, now that's just, the Isle of Skye, I can just never get enough of. And it has uh, not enough infrastructure to handle its crowds, so we really need to be smart about it. Mm. And uh, that's our challenge. And uh, one thing that has come out of COVID, by the way, uh, Beth and Sarah, is that they learned that they can control the crowds with these timed entries. And even if they're done with the pandemic, uh, I think a lot of them are going to keep these uh, timed entry uh, policies. And I'm not inclined to nail myself down three weeks in advance to go to this or that gallery or palace or whatever at two o'clock instead of nine o'clock. But we got to do that now. And it's just smart. Uh, and then you build the rest of your itinerary around that. And when I'm updating one of my Rick Steves uh, guidebooks in Europe, I like to have like a sidebar on the first page of the chapter that kind of summarizes, okay, you're going to Amsterdam. You want to have freedom. You don't want to have everything nailed down, but you don't want to be frustrated by places that, are, that don't let you in because you didn't get a ticket in advance. So I'll tell you, if you're going to Amsterdam and you want to see Anne Franks, you've got to get a reservation for that in advance. Yeah. You want to see Van Gogh? You want to see Van Gogh? Get a ticket for that in advance. You want to see the Rembrandts at the Reich Museum? Get a, and then if you want to have a fancy dinner in a trendy restaurant, those book up weeks in advance in Amsterdam. There's the four things you need to do before you get to Amsterdam in advance. And the flip side of that coin is everything else, you can wing it. Uh, but then you won't be upset. It's just, to me, there's two IQs of travelers, those who wait in lines and those who don't wait in lines. And uh, if you're waiting in line, your time's precious, your vacation's precious, you and your travel partners probably screwed up. You probably could have got around that line. Uh, and there's ways to do that. Uh, you know, you just don't want to go to the Acropolis when the cruise ships are in town. Right. You know, uh, there's 3,000 tourists on a cruise ship in Athens. Every one of them wants to go to the Acropolis. Yeah. Three cruise ships, 9,000 tourists, and you trying to get up onto that rock. Why not go in the morning? Why not? It's open till 8 o'clock at night. Cruise ships are gone by 4 or 5 o'clock. 
Why not go to the Acropolis at six o'clock? It's just you and the warm tones of the setting sun. And then uh, when I'm on the Acropolis, I look at my photograph of it. I always uh, joke it comes with a soundtrack. I can hear the whistle of the guard saying, Mr. We're closed. You got to get out of here now. You're the last one on the Acropolis. Yes, I'm the last one on the Acropolis. I can stand here. I can see half of all the Greek people from this little perch, 5 million people out of the 10 million people in Greece. And I've had a magic hour and I'm happy to go now. Well, listen, <laughs> you got my loyalty forever in 1999 when I took some. I remember it, you were like, turn this corner, open this second door. And I skipped all these crowds in the, the Sistine Chapel. Sistine yes, Chapel, I was like, yeah. loyal forever for yeah. the rest of my life. And we are loyal to you here at Pantsuit Politics. We thank uh, you so much for coming on our uh, show again. It's fun to talk to both of you. And uh, let's talk again whenever uh, travel issues Always, intersect yes. with what you like to talk Always. about. Thank you. Happy travels. Thank you. Thank you to Rick and Craig for coming on the show. We can't wait to hear your thoughts on social and in our inboxes. Next up, we're going to talk about limitations we have all experienced in our lives when it comes to travel and how we dealt with those. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. 
their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, I'm hearing that, you know, life is a highway. I'm going to write it all night long song on my head. We have conversations about travel. But the reality is that life is full of speed bumps. And so travel is not always this aspirational, wide open experience we have to work within our own lives. And that can mean lots of things, you know, for big portions of both of our recent existences. It meant traveling with a tiny ton of children. Not always an enjoyable experience. It can mean traveling with limited budgets. It can mean traveling with physical limitations. So we thought we would just have a conversation about that. Well, I can imagine that one of the biggest impediments to travel for the vast majority of people is just getting the time away from work. Mm -hmm. So many people, as we've talked about before, are on PTO plans where you have time available to you, but it feels like you need to hold on to that in case someone gets really sick or someone dies or you get really sick or you just need Mm -hmm. to go to the dentist and the doctor and get your hair cut every once in a while. And so not having those big blocks of time freely available is hard. And I know that when I was um, practicing lawyer, I had lots of freedom over my own schedule, but I never felt like I could go anywhere and really be gone. I was free to go wherever I wanted to go as long as I could work while I was there and do whatever was on my calendar for work that week. And that really changes your experience of travel. I am the worst parent when I am multitasking. When I am trying to really be in the moment with my kids and also really be in the moment with anything work-related, that is when I parent at my worst. So what I've realized now that I have the freedom to actually be gone is that I'm kind of a, I'm at my best as a parent when we're on the road because I am not trying to multitask. And I am so grateful for the privilege of that. And I recognize that that's just not everyone's experience. Yeah, my husband's an attorney. He works on every one of our vacations. He takes a computer with him and there will be small moments here and there. And I've just had to let that go because I feel like it soothes a little of his anxiety about how much he should be billing while he's gone or that he's not billing. And so if he can work in some moments here and there and feel like he can be even more present (laughs) once he puts it away, I'm like, whatever, do what you got to do. But I definitely agree about parenting. I love being a parent while traveling. It's like my peak parenting experience. And that was true even when my kids were really little. So when they were really little, our dear friends who we travel with a great deal had access to a house on the beach on Fripp Island, South Carolina, and we would go with them. I love traveling with other people's children because then my children have playmates which is just like its own type of vacation. I feel that way when I'm home, too. And like when they were really little and people were like, are you sure I can drop them off to play? I'm like, please, 
please, please, please drop them off to play. Um, and so on vacation, I love traveling with another family for that reason. I feel that way even this summer, and I got big older kids, and they're still more fun when there's other kids around for them to talk to and hang out with. And we would bring my cousin and a friend, and we would pay them a couple hundred dollars because they still got a trip to the beach, and they would watch the people that napped in the morning. They'd stay with the nappers, or like one of them would, and one of them would come help us with the big kids at the beach. They'd watch everybody in the afternoon. Even the big kids who didn't nap would hang out in the room in the afternoon, and then they'd watch the kids like one or two nights while we went on an adult's date night. And it was the best. It was always our best vacations. I felt relaxed. I didn't feel like I was just parenting toddlers in another location. I felt like I got a real... I almost missed those vacations. That's how much I loved those beach vacations with some mommy helpers and another family. I totally agree. I love going with other people. I just think it makes everything so much smoother. It also just kind of gives you permission to really be on vacation. It is easy Mm -hmm. for Chad and I in particular (laughs) because we are both workers. You know, we will find something to keep us busy and that we feel like rewarded and accomplished about no matter what situation we're in. So we're so much better at just coming down when there are friends for our kids and friends for Mm -hmm. us to hang out with. Yeah, I love that experience. I think it is really, really fun. It just feels like there's a lot of pressure when you're by yourselves, just as you're like nuclear family (laughs) to like have a good time and enjoy each other. Um, And so I think that that really helped when we had Littles. It also helps save money. I mean, when you're traveling with Mm -hmm. another family and you can share the expense and you can get, sometimes you have to get a bigger place, but it still sort of breaks down cost per bed a lot cheaper. We had to drive places. We did very little flying early in our marriage. We did a lot of vacations early in our in our marriage in particular with family members who were like footing the bills. <laughs> like my dad drove us down the Pacific Coast Highway. My mom flew us to Hawaii for her 50th birthday. Or we would just go visit family members that lived in locations we hadn't ever been to. And we would drive and we would stay at their house. Gosh, I remember sleeping on the floor of my brother-in-law's house in St. Petersburg, Florida, so we could go to the beach (laughs) in our early 20s. Um, And so we did a lot of staying with us. Listen, I still stay with other people in other people's houses for real. And I really want to try the home swap, which looks like an amazing way to save money. I just need to get my house on the actual website. But that looks like another cool option. I know Kristen Howerton travels a ton with her four kids by just doing home swap with other people. But I think, you know, those limitations, like even with the, when they were little, like they built experiences that I wouldn't have had otherwise that sometimes I even look back and think, man, I miss that. I think that that really brings into focus the difference between travel and vacation, too, because there is an element of traveling, especially if we're staying with someone else that I find really stressful. Mm. And that's been true for me pretty much my entire adult life, especially because, as many of you know, I have fibromyalgia. Uh, I never know what my energy level is going to be like from day to day, even when I'm really thriving. You know, there can still be situations where the smallest deviation in my routine sends me into a tailspin. I struggle with weird things like spiral staircases are very hard for me. Um, Subways kind of take off my sense of balance. I can get car sick pretty easily. So I'm a little bit of a delicate flower in the world. And I have a lot of anxiety before I hit the road every time about what are those speed bumps going to look like for me this time? How am I going to 
roll with it. I'm a larger body. There are plane seats that I just find extremely uncomfortable. I don't want to be touching the people around me. I don't want them to think like, oh, why am I sitting next to this person who takes up all this space? That's a terrible feeling to think Mm -hmm. about how much physical space you're occupying in the world. And travel comes with all of that. And so when I think about summer and vacation, I don't think about travel a lot. I think about being here at my house where I am comfortable and I know I can roll with anything that's happened and where we've had the real privilege and luxury of being able to build things that we super enjoy, like having a pool and a garden and some extra space around. So that just feels so much more comforting to me because being out in the world comes with a lot of obstacles. Yeah, I think for me this summer, especially summer travel season, this is the smallest amount of anxiety I've ever had going into the summer since you and I've been working full time. I think it's because my kids are going to sleepaway camp for extended periods of time and then we're traveling. Even obviously with Felix's type 1 diabetes, like it plays into it. I think my husband has a lot more anxiety about it than I do. He's a worst case scenario. I'm a best case scenario. That's probably why I like travel because my brain just goes, we will figure it out. We will find a way. Um, That's just like my default mode. But it's it's such a personality thing. It really is. We were traveling for work and someone said, doesn't it just exhaust you? I'm like, no, it gives me energy. But that's a personality thing. Like so many things in life, like what makes you flourish, what zaps you of energy. Once you figure that out, it really makes a difference in how you structure your everyday life, much less what you do with your days off. And I think travel is such a it's like a personality test. Like, do you like a beach? Do you like a cruise? Do you like an adventure? <laughs> do, you, do you like to go somewhere you've never gone? Do you like to go back to the same place every time? Like, it's just such a personality thing. And I think that that's what's important to remember. Like, there's not a wrong answer. There's not a right answer. It's just whatever helps you feel unplugged from your daily stresses and plugged into your personal delights. You know, if you can stay in touch with sort of both of those sides of the coin. I think that it is a personality thing to an extent, but I also think it's a circumstances thing. Like my mom loves a roller coaster. She just can't do it anymore because of her Mm. rheumatoid arthritis. When you and I were in Paris, I thought there are so many aspects of this that mom would love. And I saw no real means to get her there and to have it be a good trip for her at all, mm-hmm. you know, and and there are definitely places you can go where the experience is really colored by feeling limited in your resources there. Like, look how much more fun this would be if I could afford to do X, Y, and Z. So I think there's a personality element, but I also think there are just some hard limitations that many of us run into in different circumstances. I do want to say Even with the nervousness that I experience around travel, I love to do it. I'm always happy that I've done it. I especially love it when we're out traveling for work and the people that we get to meet. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I uh, express anything other than sheer delight, people take it as like, well, maybe let's leave Beth alone while we're out on the road because this is a lot for her. No, I love it. And I want to be in the moment and in the experience. And also, yeah, the run up is hard. And sometimes the aftermath is hard. And that's okay because it's worth it. But it does make me think with my family time about how we can have just the smoothest, easiest run out there because some of it's hard. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know if I've ever gone on a trip in my life and I got home and was like, man, I regret that. I wish I hadn't gone. And maybe that's just the psychological trick of like you've you've invested in it. You've taken your time and your energy and your money and you put it in it. So you're not going to be like, what a waste. Um, but I never feel like that. Even trips that I look back and we like had some stressful moment or something fell apart. Like my beloved friend Laura says, if it's not a good time, it's a good story. So we hope your summer is full of good times and good stories, both. And we will be back in your ears next week. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Danny Osmond, Jen Ross, Sabrina Drago, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.